Am I on? Am I talking? Hello, hello. Somebody turn me on. Eddie, turn me on. Give me some volume. Hello? Hello, hello. Sometimes I just feel like I'm talking to myself. This is, oh, there's the speaker. Okay. A couple of announcements. Um, <clears throat> one thing uh, <clears throat> that I don't know where Sandy disappeared, but she can make a note of. Uh, this last uh, week we had interviewed um, Michael and Young Un Cha as new members. Michael left Monday. He made it okay, right? Okay. Because I got a frantic call from David Roseland about, I don't know, one or two, and they were trying, he couldn't get a hold of him on his phone, and they were trying to connect. But uh, he's up at uh, Baptist Bible Seminary for classes this week, next week, and the following week on his Ph.D. David Roseland is there as well, so you might want to keep both of them in your prayers as they're going through their, uh, their classes and their studies at uh, Baptist Bible Seminary. Also, just a reminder that uh, we're taking up things for the box to go to uh, uh, Ukraine. That will be shipped on July the 6th. Right now we need back-to-school items. And one of, there's a real need over there right now because fin- uh, financially things are, are a mess. When I was there in January, their, their mode of currency is called the Grivna, and it was and it has been stabilized for about four or five years, artificially, of course, just like everything else in economics, uh, at um, at a ratio of eight grivna to a dollar. Now it's at almost twelve to a dollar. So they've lost about fifty percent of their of their buying power, and that's the, that's why most people in Ukraine are hurting right now is because of economic instability and the problems there. Um, so. Uh, these things are, are needed in a much greater way than ever before. We've got our men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning at 7.30, and the, um, the Jim Myers will be speaking as, as well. Also, we don't need to have any more food brought for the Robinson family. Plenty has been brought there, well supplied, above and beyond uh, their greatest imagination. June 28th, the church will host a ladies' prayer luncheon beginning at 10 a.m., and uh, information sign-up sheet, sign-up sheet is back there in the kitchen. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so each one can make sure they're in fellowship, give you the opportunity to confess any sins to God in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Uh, Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to in time of uh, in time of need. Father, we know that there are many in this congregation who are facing various uh, challenges. There are people who are taking care of parents. There are others who are dealing with certain very uh, challenging situations with their children. 
Father, we also know that there are others who are facing uh, economic challenges, and we pray for them and that your grace would be uh, abundant and manifest in their lives and that they would have a tremendous testimony of your grace in supplying their needs. Father, we pray for uh, Michael and David as they're uh, going through their Ph.D. coursework the next uh, three weeks. We pray that you would uh, give them rest, good nights, sleep, give them opportunities to study, focus, and do well in all of their, all of their work. And, Father, we pray for us as we study this evening that we might be able to focus and understand the things that you have revealed, that it might help us to clarify your word and to understand how to apply it more precisely in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing. Uh, Bryce, you want to come get the microphone? We're continuing our study tonight in, uh, on dispensations. And for those who are out there listening, live streaming, or anyone local, if you've got questions, let me know. If you don't have questions tonight, either you're totally lost and confused or you just don't know what to ask because this is an area that is surely an area of much confusion for many believers, and it's certainly an area of confusion in relation to uh, a lot of a lot of Christians, and that's in the area of the of the new covenant. So we've gone through the various covenants in the Old Testament. This is the last covenant that's mentioned in the Old Testament and the one under which many people believe that we're operating today. Usually they go to one of two verses to substantiate that. They will go to uh, Luke 22, where Jesus is instituting the Lord's table. And when he came to the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. And they believe that in some ways instituting the new covenant. In First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul states that we have been made ministers of the new covenant. So doesn't that mean that that's what we are proclaiming right now is the, is the new covenant? Then, of course, uh, a third passage, it's not quite as uh, pronounced as those two, is in Hebrews chapter 8 when it talks about the fact that uh, Christ is a mediator of a better covenant, and this passage goes on then to quote, the central passage on the New Covenant, which is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Now, I want to begin here and read this because this is the only passage in the Old Testament that calls this the New Covenant. I believe and will study a number of other passages that say almost identical things to this, and they are corollary passages, but they don't use the term New Covenant. Now, that in itself is a matter of debate among uh, various dispensationalists because there are those who say that Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 is the only new covenant passage. The others don't have anything to do with it. And, you know, my reply is if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And if it's talking about the consequences of something or it's talking about the characteristics of of an eternal covenant, which this is, and it's describing the same features, then it's the new covenant. And there are many who believe that. That is, I think, the, the probably the uh, most uh, predominant position among, uh, among dispensationalists. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
Jeremiah writes in his message from the Lord, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is important to understand that this, what we see here, and I'll reiterate this ad nauseum tonight, is that this is a covenant or contract that God is making with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's making that covenant with uh, Israel, not with the church. If you read into this, and we have one listener who's had some dialogue with those who hold the covenant theology, if you hold the covenant theology, what you're reading into this is that is a presupposition, and that is that Israel in the Old Testament is is the church in secret, and the church today is spiritual Israel. And so therefore, when it talks about uh, God making a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, what they read there is that this means the church of the Old Testament. But they're reading that into the text everywhere else in the Scripture up to this point where you have the house of Israel and the house of Judah It's describing literally the 12 tribes of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God says he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their father. See how this this further reinforces that literal interpretation. It is contrasted with a previous covenant that was made with their fathers. Now, when did he make it with their fathers? Well, the verse goes on to say uh, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So it's very clear that he expands on this idea that there, it's the house of Israel, the house of Judah at the time that this is given, which is about approximately 605 B.C., And he says, this is not like the covenant I made with their fathers, and they're described as those who came out of Egypt, the descendants, of course, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 33 we read, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And the after those days is a term that refers to the future time of Wrath, future time of dispersion of the nation throughout all of the all of the nations under the fifth cycle of discipline, and God says that after those days, is it after those days yet? Has the last seven years of Daniel's seventieth week taken place yet? The time of the tribulation, has that taken place yet? No. So if that hasn't taken place yet, then this covenant is not has not been enacted yet because God says that he will make that covenant with the house of Israel after those days. The reason I'm pointing that out is the debate that we see today among among a subset of, of alleged dispensationalists, they're called progressive dispensationalists, and I'm not sure that that most traditional dispensationalists would agree that they're even dispensationalists. In fact, when they wrote, when one of the first books was written on progressive dispensationalism, a former dispensationalist, an Old Testament scholar from Dallas Seminary by the name of uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke read their book and said, they're amillennial, but they don't know it. 
they're not really dispensationalists anymore, but they don't want to admit it. So uh, what they say is that the new covenant was inaugurated. That's an important word to listen for in this discussion. It was inaugurated. To inaugurate something means for it to begin, for something to start. They would say it was inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully put into effect yet. This position has become known as the already not yet view of the kingdom, the already not yet view of the new covenant, because uh, you see the, the enacting of the new covenant happens at the beginning of the of the kingdom. So the two things really do go together, which is uh, correlates with a lot of the things that we're studying related to the kingdom on on Sunday morning. So God says, this is the covenant which, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, not before those days. So this, in terms of the language of Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which is the sacrifice that, that undergirds the new covenant, doesn't make the covenant. Now that's hard for some people to understand because that's not what they've, assumed or been led to believe. But if Jeremiah 31 is correct, 3133 is correct, that God only makes the covenant or enters into the covenant after those days, after the tribulation, then whatever is going on today can't be the new covenant. It may look like it. It may be related to its future uh, establishment. But whatever we see going on today isn't the new covenant. And then we'll have to address those uh, passages I mentioned at, in the introduction when we get there. And then God describes some characteristics of what it will be like in the time of the new covenant. God says, I will put my law in their minds. Now, he's not doing this indirectly through teachers because in some of the parallel passages that we'll see, no one will teach their neighbor because everyone will know, everyone will know the law. Not most of them, not every believer, but everyone will know the law. Therefore, there's, there's no place for teaching. Now, remember, who's the covenant made with? The covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It, these are not covenant provisions that apply to Gentiles in the, under the, in the, in the kingdom. This only applies to the Jews that are in the kingdom because they're the covenant partners. So if you're Jewish in the millennial kingdom under the new covenant, then according to this passage, the law has been placed in your mind by God. It's a completely different dynamic than what we've seen in any previous uh, dispensation. But guess what? The end- And you don't understand it. And I don't understand it. Why? Because it's about as foreign to us in terms of our experience as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit for us is foreign to those who were under the old covenant. They had no concept of, of the filling of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit prior to the day of Pentecost. Just like we have no frame of reference for understanding the dynamic that will take place under the new covenant. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the uh, 
third-person plural pronoun here that's repeated, their minds, their hearts, their God, my people, all are descriptive. There's a totality there that is, uh, that is significant to understand. So this introduces us to the new covenant. Now let's put this within the framework of what we've studied already. In the Old Testament, we see that promises are made, and in the future, they will be fulfilled. Many of these promises have not yet been fulfilled. Now I'm going to add to the chart our dispensational chart. Here we have the uh, various dispensations beginning really with Abraham and the formation of Israel, uh, the patriarchs, Moses, then we move to the theocracy and the monarchy, all of these, then the exile, the restoration. These are the periods that take place within the dispensation, or excuse me, within the age of Israel. You could divide it. The first part would be the age of the patriarchs, the dispensation of the patriarchs, rather. And from this point on, uh, this would be the dispensation of the law, the giving of the law. So this is part of the uh, age of Israel. It, the timeline is split by the cross. Following the cross, you have the dispensation of the church, the authority of the apostles, and the final dispensation, the millennium, and the authority is going to be Jesus Christ. What disting, what's really distinguishes Israel from everybody else and what redefines God's purpose for history is the Abrahamic covenant. The three elements, as we've studied, of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. Each one of those aspects of the Abrahamic covenant is then given a greater expression in subsequent covenants. Last time we looked at the real estate covenant, which is defined in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, talking about how God will bring Israel back to the land after a worldwide scattering. He brings them back to the land, and they will be in the land. When is this fulfilled? Not until the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That's when he restores them to the land. Then we saw the Davidic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, God promises an eternal descendant of David will sit on David's throne, a literal throne, in a literal Jerusalem, and he will rule over God's people. But when is the Davidic covenant fulfilled? It's not fulfilled by Christ's first coming. It's fulfilled at the second coming, just at the same time that the land covenant is fulfilled. It's fulfilled at that time as well. And then we have the new covenant, which is what we're studying this evening, and the new covenant is fulfilled at the, at the second coming as well. All three of these happen simultaneously, and so in some of these passages, that, we stu- that you study and that you will read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, some of, the, uh, some of the prophets, the minor prophets, you see an interrelationship when it talks about the fulfillment of these covenants. The reason I have a dashed line there going to the church is because the certainty of that covenant has been established by Christ's death on the cross. That's the sacrifice that undergirds the covenant. That covenant and some of the covenant blessings are applied to us today. It's pretty simple. Think about, I'm surprised it confuses some people, though, but it's, it's pretty simple. God entered into a contract in the Old Testament with Abraham. 
God unilaterally uh, unilaterally uh, established the covenant with Abraham, and God alone is responsible for fulfilling that covenant. It's not dependent upon Abraham. That's why we call it an unconditional covenant. It's an eternal covenant. And God told Abraham that on the basis of this covenant between God and Abraham, God would in turn bless all the nations. God would bless all the Gentiles. It would have nothing to do with you Gentiles out there. It would have everything to do with this legal document that God established between himself and Abraham. Now, when we go to the New Covenant, which deals with the expansion of the blessing idea in the Abrahamic Covenant, what God does is he enters into this legal contract with Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and says, on the basis of this contract, I'm going to bless the Gentiles. It's the same thing we've already seen in the Old Testament. This doesn't mean that the Gentiles have to be a party to the contract. Nowhere does it state that the church is a party to the new covenant. The new covenant is always stated to be between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But because that is established by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross, then on the basis of the certainty of that future covenant being made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, God is able to do things today because that sacrifice, which is the foundation for the new covenant, has been already made and already made in the past. So this this helps us see how the, the ultimately the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all of these are fulfilled in the end times. Now let's go through a summary of these passages. We've seen that the primary scripture for the new covenant is in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Based on reading that, we see that there are two groups involved, or God is part of the first part, the triune God, and Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the party of the second part. It is a unilateral covenant. God binds himself to the, to the fulfillment of the covenant. Now let's look at, at its importance. It is, its importance is that it develops that third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing aspect. The land covenant expanded the land promise. The Davidic covenant expanded the seed promise. And the new covenant expands the blessing. Now let's look at the provisions. This is just going to summarize them. But then I'm going to go back and we're going to look at all of these different passages. Now, if you went through the Hebrew study with me some years ago and we came to Hebrews 8, actually starting in Hebrews 7 and on into 8, we did a pretty exhaustive study of covenants and the new covenant. So that's another place you can go if you want to drill down into more of these particular details. First thing we see in summary is that it's an unconditional covenant between God and both houses of Israel. It's not made with the church. The church is not in view of anything in the Old Testament. The church was, that's why Paul referred to it as a mystery doctrine. Mystery means a previously unrevealed truth. So there's nothing in the Old Testament that even gives a hint of the, uh, of the church in the future. So the covenant is not made with the church. At the time the covenant was made, there's no house of Israel. 
they have already been taken out of the land through the Assyrian invasion, and they were de- the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722. So they've already been scattered among the nations. The only thing that's in existence at the time that Jeremiah wrote this in, in 605 is the house of Judah, and they only have uh, about 20 years left before they're going to be out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Second, it's clear that this is distinct from the Mosaic Covenant, just as we saw with the Land Covenant and with the Davidic Covenant. And God specifically states that it is not according to the covenant made with when Israel came out of Egypt. That's in 31-32. Third thing it promises is the regeneration of Israel the regeneration of Israel, that this will be universal among all Jews from the least to the greatest, the text says. It's going to be applied to everyone. Now, that's hard for us to understand, but the Bible says that every Jew is going to be saved. This is part of the reason. Remember, we go back to the law. We go back to Deuteronomy 27. We go back to the early part of Leviticus 26. God promised a whole host of blessings to to Israel. On what condition? That they're all obedient to the law. Well, that condition is only going to be fulfilled under the terms of the new covenant in the future. And that's only going to that's the only time you're going to have all this blessing. That's what is described in all these passages is the wonderful ways in which God's going to bless Israel to the maximum as God had promised he would in the Old Testament they were obedient. So we see that this this fits the context. Why are they going to be obedient? Because finally, after all these years of rebelliousness and being stiff-necked, they they are so judged and disciplined and go through such a hellacious period during the tribulation that this is something that stays with them. And when they hear these stories, no Jew is going to reject the gospel during the millennial kingdom. That's a fact. It doesn't mean God's going to reach in and tweak their volition. God, some, some writers say, well, God chose them. Don't, don't read into those phrases some sort of Calvinistic presupposition. Most of the men in this room that have been married chose their wives. But I don't think any of the men in this room chose their wife apart from their volition. Just because you say God chose us doesn't mean that you're throwing volition down in the garbage disposal. It just means that those sentences and those statements are emphasizing the divine side and not the human side. And Paul, especially in the New Testament, makes that very clear that uh, God chose us in Christ. There are conditions that are clearly stated, but they're not stated everywhere. Uh, God does not feel it necessary to satisfy the unreasonable demands of human editors and qualify every statement every time he makes it. He says it once, and that's enough for the rest of the Scripture. You just have to understand it. So there's the, the, the promise of regeneration for Israel and forth, There's a promise that all their sins will be forgiven. This is seen actually in Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. Again, you have the universal uh, 
adjective there for every man. It applies to every single person. You start uh, trying to um, change the meaning of these terms, these universal terms, every and all, in a passage like this, you have real problems when you come to Genesis 6 through 9 when you have the terms used in every other verse to describe the universality of Noah's flood. If every and all used again and again and again throughout Genesis 6 and 7 uh, refer to the universality of the flood, it certainly refers to the universality of salvation and regeneration in the millennial kingdom. No more, God says, shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. In other words, among, the, among Israel, there won't be a need for a, an evangelist, for a gift of evangelism. Uh, when no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, that involves outside the family and inside the family. That means parents don't even need to tell their children. That's the point. This is going to be a remarkably distinct period spiritually than anything else we've seen. So if you're confused, that's fine. We haven't been there yet. Every, um, for they shall all know me, God says, from the least of them to the greatest of them. I mean, the, the, the universality of these statements is beyond, uh, uh, beyond doubt. From the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is a profound statement about these unique spiritual characteristics of the uh, time under the new covenant when it was established. Now, when I first went to seminary, because within dispensationalism, a lot of these things are muddy and they're not real clear and some people get confused. There are a lot of people, seminary, there were a lot of seminary professors and others who would teach that the new covenant came in in a quasi way, in a partial way, uh, with the beginning of the church. And so what we see is, uh, is similarities are partial fulfillments. And I would say we don't see any, we see similarities, but no partial anything. It's it's just not the new covenant. We're we're still in an era when the new covenant hasn't been made yet. There are similarities that anticipate the new covenant. The indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in every believer is profound today, but it's nothing like this. This is an indwelling of, of the Spirit in every Jewish believer so that they don't need to know the Word. They don't need to be informed of the word. They don't need to teach the word. That's not like the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today. That's, has, that's nothing like the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit today. It is a unique environment. So that establishes it, that summarizes it in those verses. Now, there are a number of other verses, not just these, that provide us with confirmations about this, and they come from Isaiah, they come from Jeremiah, and they also come from Ezekiel. And what we're going to do tonight is go through uh, many of these passages in order to see how God has talked about this and the timing in which he talks about it. That's important because in a lot, the context of a lot of these verses that correlate with Jeremiah 31, we know that it must be the new covenant because it's talking about a, an eternal covenant 
that comes into effect at the time that the kingdom is established. And there's only two other options, the land covenant and the Davidic covenant. And so when the stipulations or the descriptions or characteristics of the covenant that are being discussed are in the spiritual realm, it has to be the new covenant. Isaiah 42.6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Here he's talking to his servants. So this is talking about Christ as the covenant. Isaiah 49.8, thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I've answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will restore you and give you for a covenant to the people. And I want you to look at some of these verses, so I'm going to slip back, because this is a really interesting verse here. Isaiah 49 is again talking about the, the servant. This is in the servant section, and God is addressing uh, his servant. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, God says, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But when we, by the time we get down to verse 8, God is no longer addressing Israel. He's addressing another th- person. Thus, we have the Lord in this chapter. We also have the servant who is also identified. Um, it gets a, a little ambiguous at times because you're shifting back between members of the Trinity. You have the Redeemer of Israel in verse 7, which is probably speaking about God the Father. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, and he goes on from there, and then because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. And so here it's shifting from the servant, Israel is the servant, to talking about this individual who is the servant. And in 49.8, the Lord says, In acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Now, the people here refers to Israel. So God would not be saying, I'm giving you Israel as a covenant to the people Israel. So that's how we know that this is talking about a person other than Israel. The, the identity of the servant has shifted by verse 8. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to, them to inherit the desolate heritages. That's the land that has been under uh, condemnation uh, during the years that Israel was out of the land. So... This indicates that identification of the, such a close identification of the covenant with the servant who will, is the one who makes that covenant. Turn over a couple of chapters, past the well-known chapter 53 to chapter 4. We have another reference to the, a covenant here. And this covenant is described as a covenant of peace. This is another term that is used for the new covenant. 
In verse 10, we read, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. The first part of that verse is talking about that even though geographical features may change, I never change. So it's using an an idiom, a very picturesque language there to emphasize the uh, immutability of God and the certainty of his grace. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. So this covenant of peace is what ultimately is established by Christ on the cross because he is the one who, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, breaks down the wall of enmity between Jew and Gentile and between creatures and God and establishes peace. So the this must refer to the new covenant and describes it as a covenant of peace. Again, it's implied here that this covenant is uh, never broken, so it's an eternal covenant that's stated more clearly in the next chapter in Isaiah 55, verse 3. Again, a very famous chapter that is uh, often uh, used in evangelism. Uh, I'll just begin at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's grace. It has no price on it. It's talking about salvation. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what is not satisfied? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Now, this connects it to the Davidic covenant. It's talking about spiritual blessings, so that connects it to the, identifies it with the new covenant. And we come to Isaiah 61.8. This connects it to the uh, character of God and the justice of God. In Isaiah 61, verses 8 and 9, we read, this is towards the end of uh, Isaiah's prophecy, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So he establishes this everlasting covenant. He's the one who makes it. It's unilateral. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see of them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I want you to note in verse 8, when it says, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and the burnt offering, that's talking about, the second part of that's talking about injustice in, in Israel in time. I will faithfully give them their recompense. That's talking about God will bring judgment upon them for their disobedience. But then he will follow that judgment, which is in the tribulation period, with an everlasting covenant. So the judgment does not completely do away with Israel or its significance. After punishing Israel for their sins, God will make this everlasting covenant with them that results in her salvation. For all Jews who survive the tribulation period go into the millennial kingdom. They are all saved, as as we'll see in Romans 11. So let's look at some other points. First of all, 
After punishing Israel for their sins, God makes this everlasting covenant with them, resulting in their salvation. This is seen in passages such as Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. So there's an emphasis on this distinct role of God the Holy Spirit under the new covenant that because of that ministry, the word of God will not depart from them. The idea that it shall not depart from their mouth means that it is always going to be on their lips, something they talk about, something that's part of their life, not from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants from this time and forevermore. That's pretty exclusive universal language. Then we come to uh, Jeremiah 32, 40 and following, 40 and 41. God says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Now, that doesn't mean that God does this apart from their volition, but it does show that God is the one who ultimately does that, and he brings this about so that the result will be that they will not depart from them after the the discipline and judgment they experience during the tribulation period, that is how God puts the fear for the Lord into them. And the result of that is that they will not depart from him. Does that mean they, they don't have volition anymore? No. But it means that they won't, no one will uh, exercise negative volition. No Jew will exercise negative volition during the millennial kingdom. And it goes on, God goes on in verse 41, Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land. What covenant is that? That's a land covenant. I will plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Then we come to Ezekiel chapter 16. So we've looked at Isaiah, we've looked at Jeremiah. Now turn over uh, to Ezekiel. That's the book after Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 16. One of the things that I've uh, done many times in the past when I'm reading through uh, especially the major prophets here is I make a note in the margin every time there's a promise of God related to the restoration of the Jews to the land. It's amazing how many times God makes this, makes this promise. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 60, 60 through 63 this is a very long chapter, and I'm not going through the whole thing. He, he concludes the chapter saying, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish, that's future tense, he remembers the old covenant, and he's going to establish a new covenant, an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you, and I will <clears throat> I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your... What, I've lost the verse. Okay, 62. Then I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation." See, their, their future obedience, the universal response to the grace of God in the millennial kingdom is directly tied to the judgment that they experienced during the tribulation period that was 
uh, known as a time of Jacob's wrath. It is not that Jacob has wrath, that Jacob receives the wrath or the discipline of God. um, In order that you may may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. Now we go to another chapter, a few more pages down, Ezekiel chapter 34. Notice how these, this promise of this future time is interwoven again and again. Here's another passage that refers to this covenant as a covenant of peace. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. Notice the similarities with the promise in the Mosaic covenant, that if they were obedient, God would remove the wild beasts from the land. This is not going, God is not liked by the environmentalists. He's constantly trying to remove the wild beasts from the land. They will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the fulfillment of those blessing promises in Deuteron- early part of Deuteronomy 27, uh, 27, Leviticus 26. God's just going to outpour these blessings upon Israel. Uh, verse 27 and 28, Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. That's that productivity promised as part of the Mosaic Covenant. They shall be safe in their land. Know that I am the Lord. There's not going to be a threat of military attack. Uh, They shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall know... uh, And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. It's a unique period. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, my people, says the Lord. If you are my flock... Uh, you are my flock, the flock of my pastures, you are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So he provides all of this. Now, the second thing we see from looking at these passages in the, in the um, prophets is that as a result of the covenant that's described in Ezekiel 34:25, only then will Israel enjoy the blessings that we've just read about, in, uh, uh, that we've just read about, and they're described again in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 31, when they dwell securely in the land. Notice what God says in this passage. This is so important. Ties to the spiritual aspect over in Jeremiah 31, 34. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. These are plural pronouns. God is not talking to them as individuals, but talking to them as a corporate entity. These, he's saying this to all of them. I will give all of you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in all of you. I will take the heart of stone out of y'all's flesh and give y'all a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Notice it's very clear there. God is the one who is the ultimate cause. That doesn't mean there, there are different ways in which causation is described 
There's intermediate causation and ultimate causation, and God is talking here about ultimate causation. It's not a violation of volition or the individual's volition, but that God is the one who is working in a distinct way ultimately. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Verse 28 describes the results. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations." God is going to overwhelm them with grace and bounty so that they remember what happened before. They remember the idolatry. They remember their disobedience. And their shame is so profound that this then motivates them to never be disobedient again. The third thing we see is that in Ezekiel 37, now moving to the next chapter, that the new covenant is called the covenant of peace, as we've seen in Isaiah as well. Their dwelling will be secure, and the nations will all know that the Lord established them, and they will be a witness to the world. Now, Ezekiel 37 is the dry bones passage that uh, is describing the initial regathering of the nation prior to God breathing into it, which is a picture of the regeneration of the nation. And in uh, uh, Ezekiel 37, we see this description given. Uh, Then they shall dwell in the land, that's the land covenant, that I have given to Jacob my servant where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. That's because none of them are unbelievers. Their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. That's not an allusion to Jesus Christ. You have a tier of authority there. You have Christ as the king and David the prince. Moreover, God says in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So there's not going to be a future time of judgment upon the nation as the Mosaic law clearly predicted many times. Verse 27, God says, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The word for tabernacle means dwelling. My dwelling shall also be with them. Verse 28, The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. If they were going to rebel again, it wouldn't be there forevermore. Then we come into the New Testament. In Romans 11, 25 to 27, we see another allusion to the new covenant. Uh, When it's established, there's going to be universal salvation in Israel and material prosperity in the land. In Romans 11, 25 to 27, Paul writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But once the implication there and the way this Greek word until is, that's translated until is used, it indicates that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then the partial blindness goes away. 
And so all Israel will be saved. This, I've had people say, well, how can God say that? If people have volition, quit arguing with God. It's very clear that God states this. All Israel will be saved because those who survived the tribulation are those who escaped when they saw all of the things happening at the midpoint related to the abomination of desolation. And they left. They fled to the mountains. The only people that flee to the mountains and survive are the ones who listen to Jesus. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of unsaved Jews that are going to be listening to the warnings of Jesus halfway through the tribulation. Those that do leave, so that this remnant that heads to the wilderness around Petra and Basra are the ones who will be physically delivered. And this is when the deliverer, which describes the uh, Messiah, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this, God says, is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the application of the new covenant uh, to Israel and their salvation. Now, that gives us a pretty broad understanding of the Old, Old Testament passages. Before we look at some of the New Testament issues related to the church, probably ought to pause and see if anybody's got a question related to anything. Lots of them. All right. Okay. From Paul in uh, Pittsburgh. Okay. When we say that the knowing of the whole law will be in the minds and hearts applies to only Jews in the kingdom and not to the Gentiles, does this apply to those Gentiles who have died prior to the rapture and have since returned with Jesus Christ? Or does it apply only to those Gentiles who survived the tribulation? Or does it apply to both? Well, it applies what happens at the end of the tribulation is you have Gentile believers who survive, Jewish believers who survive, and they go into the kingdom. The covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and these provisions apply only to the, to the saved Jewish believers who go into the kingdom. Those provisions do not apply to the Gentiles because these are, strictly speaking, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, Gentiles... All Gentiles who've died and all Jews who've died prior to the second coming are going to be resurrected. Church-age believers have, have already been resurrected at the rapture and rewarded. The um, All tribulation martyrs are going to be resurrected, and they will rule in the kingdom, and Gentiles from the Old Testament will also be resurrected. So everybody goes into the kingdom, but they've got resurrection bodies. So the covenant doesn't apply to those who are in resurrection bodies. It applies only to those who are in mortal bodies in the, in the millennial kingdom, and it's restricted primarily to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, the second one is from Patty in Pennsylvania. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, Jews in the millennium will know doctrine without needing to be taught, but by uh, but Isaiah 2.3 and Micah 4.2 speak of the nations and the fact that many people will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. Does this mean that in the millennium only the Jews will have that innate knowledge of doctrine, but the Gentiles will still need to be taught? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. The Jews, because that's the nations, the Gentile, that's the goyim that are, that's talking about there in the Hebrew. 
the nations, the Gentiles, come to Israel to be taught, but everyone in Israel, this is when it's fulfilled, they become a kingdom of priests. This is the first time in history they functioned as a full kingdom of priests as God uh, called them to be back in, I believe it's Exodus 4.19. Uh, the last one is, is more of a review question from last week, so you may want to just take that at the end. Okay. All right. So next time, I'm going to go ahead and stop here because we've got, we've got a whole uh, group of things to deal with coming up under the next topic, which is what's the relationship of the church to the new covenant? Now, I've already indicated that in a broad sense by, by the chart that we looked at earlier, which shows that the, the church today receives blessing on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ at the cross, which is a sacrifice for the new covenant. But that didn't establish the covenant. We're not, <clears throat> for, when we look at these passages, one of the things I've tried to emphasize is that when the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, there are other things that are happening at the same time. The Jews are brought back as a regenerate people to the land. Has that happened yet? And there is a descendant of David on the literal throne in Jerusalem. Now, one of the problems you have with progressive dispensationalism, which is why Bruce Waltke said that they were amillennial and don't know it, is because they argue that Jesus is now on the throne of David in heaven. They've spiritualized it. That's the exact same argument that you would get from an amillennialist as they spiritualize these, these promises. So progressive dispensationalists have come up with a new hermeneutic uh, called a complementary hermeneutic. They had to figure out a way to justify uh, getting this out of the Scripture and so they, they added something uh, new. And this gets into a whole other area, which we'll describe later on, that talks about how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. That's why these things are so important in understanding, understanding the Scripture, because they would say that uh, the New Testament gives a whole new meaning and adds something that was never intended by the original authors. And you have people like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Bob Thomas, who've done wonderful work in this area, uh, showing basic, giving basically the same answer, although their terminology and their categories are a little different. They're giving basically the same answer, uh, and this is not unique to them. There are others like Michael Rydelnik up at, um, up at uh, Moody in Chicago. In fact, Rydelnik has taken a lot of the stuff that, that Arnold has taught for years and refined it and made it much more scholarly because that's his, his role. Uh, a lot of times people get the idea when looking at somebody like Arnold because he sounds so scholarly that Arnold is scholarly. And in a sense he is, but not like someone who's an academic like Rydelnik who's in that milieu day in and day out teaching students. Uh, you get people like, like Arnold who's primarily an evangelist and a Bible teacher to the people in the pew as opposed to somebody who's doing more rigorous levels of research because they teach in a very narrow... So you get somebody in seminaries teaching in New Testament studies, Old Testament studies, or particular other studies in theology, they, sort, they, they become sort of specialists, and they spend um, years reading and studying in the same general, you know, narrow area, uh, whereas with most pastors and people who teach across the board, 
uh, to folks in churches and in conferences around the country, to many people who don't have much Bible background, you're, you're more like a GP. Uh, you may be a more intellectual, more academic GP, but you're a GP. You're not a specialist in in oncology or cardiology or some other uh, uh, specialty. You're, you're uh, more of a general practitioner. And that's what most pastors are. Most pastors need to be a heck of a lot more scholarly than they are. But, but we have to recognize within the body of Christ there's a division of labor. And we thank God for people like Rydelnik and Bob Thomas and others who've been able to specialize and narrowly focus in some of these areas, and we benefit uh, immensely from their scholarship. But then we also have people like Arnold and uh, um, Stephen Gare, who I think now is the new uh, president of uh, of uh, Ariel Ministries, who used to be with another another ministry. Some of these others that have a great job of helping uh, bring some of this more academic material down to a, a more uh, a little more basic level so more people can can access it and understand it. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at these things this evening, to be reminded that uh, even though the church age is a unique age and distinct age, and there are blessings that we have in Christ that go beyond anything anyone will ever have in any dispensation, there are there is still a future dispensation for Israel under the new covenant that will have remarkable aspects to it and features in relation to the role of God the Holy Spirit, and that in that time you will accomplish all of the things prophesied in the Old Testament. Father, help us realize that that we now are in preparation for that kingdom, looking forward to it, and that these these studies are so important because we're not going to be divorced from this time period, but we're going to be actively involved as co-rulers with the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom, overseeing the, uh, the administration of the Gentile nations in the millennial kingdom. And the role that we play in the future will have a lot to do with how we uh, grow and mature as believers today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.